It's a three stanza hymn. The chorus is there in verse 5 of chapter 42. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He's reminding himself of this. Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of, my, of his countenance. It's repeated in verse 11, second stanza. Then the third stanza is chapter 43, and that same chorus is repeated down there in verse 5. I like the way Matthew Henry summarizes it. Gracious hopes and fears, joys and sorrows are struggling. The conflict between sense and faith. Sense objecting, faith answering. Like one fellow said, when you're suffering, who do you send, and, and suffering comes knocking at your door, who do you send to answer? What do you send to, how do you respond to those circumstances of life? Well, this psalm is addressed to the sons of Korah, Maskell. Do you see that there? The sons of Korah. Who was that? Maskell. You remember maybe from last week, that's a term that simply means for our understanding. So this is for your understanding, so that you'll understand a little bit more about depression and discouragement and how to deal with it. The sons of Korah, perhaps, uh, well, they weren't perhaps, they were the sons of the fella Korah who had led a rebellion against Moses. They questioned who should be in charge. Well, God opened up the earth and swallowed Korah and all his followers. So the answer was pretty clear at that, at that time. But these are the sons of Korah that evidently were still alive. Perhaps the sons were the ones that wrote these next few psalms. As we turn now to the second book of the psalms, the book of some call it Exodus, prophetically telling about Israel's future and even the tribulation. If written by David, it was more of a personal exile. It could have been the time when David's son Absalom led a rebellion, kind of kicked David out. David's on the outside looking in, and he longs to return. But some of the narrative doesn't quite fit with that. But that's still, if it's David, it's a more personal experience. Whoever wrote the Psalms doesn't distract from the personal nature and teaching on victory over discouragement and even depression, which I know none of you have ever suffered. And I've been there, David's been there, whoever wrote these, they're in the midst of it, masculine. It might be a little help for our understanding as well. Well, first notice the author's desire, his desire through tears. The first stanza down through verse 5, these verses are all about expectation. If you focus on the wrong thing, the wrong expectation, you're going to end up in discouragement. When attacked by your enemy, circumstances pile up, problems take you off guard. You feel abandoned by God. Listen for the author's expression through common questions of when, where, and why. Verse 1. As the heart panteth after, you know this verse, as the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where's your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God, with a voice of joy and praise, with the multitude that kept the holy days. Why art thou cast down? The first chorus. O my soul, why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, he's reminding himself. For I shall yet praise him for the help 
of his countenance. You notice that last phrase there. One author said, the help of his countenance. Stop looking at yourself and start looking at God. False expectations. First of all, they reveal here that he felt his plans had gone unfulfilled. You've never been there, but, but just in case you ever get there and you feel like you had some plans and you had some ideas and it just didn't work out the way you thought it would. When will you? Verse 2 says, when will you, Lord? He felt abandoned by God and wanted to know when God might come to meet his expectations. In context of the Exodus, it could have been, when will we finally arrive, right? They're stuck in the desert, and it's not that big a place. I mean, there's enough places to get lost, but when is this going to be over? In the context of the future, when the godly Jews will once again return to Jerusalem, when, Lord, when will this take place? In the context of the present world, Psalm 94, Lord, how long shall the wicked triumph? And in the context of my life, maybe yours, this isn't the way I thought it would turn out, sometimes we say. And so you're going to ask him from time to time, where are you, God? When will you come to address my needs? You know, perhaps the silliest question we, we ever suggest, the silliest thing we ever suggest, is that when we have a question, and we say things like, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God. No, when you stand before God, all of your prior expectations will evaporate in the presence of God. But for now, the psalmists, with these expectations, they make him feel like his problems have gone unnoticed. Like, are you paying attention? Where's God? Verse 3, where's God at? Now, what could be worse than relying on God and then for God not to show up? Or at least, not the way you thought he should. I mean, you remember, remember Elijah when he's praying and calls down fire from heaven? What if the fire hadn't come? I don't know. I mean, I'm just asking. What about the guys and the, the three men in the fiery furnace? I mean, they said, they said, Lord is going to deliver us. And if not, the Lord did, and we all take great hope in that. But what if he hadn't showed up? There's nothing worse than trying to hold a testimony before the world and then it looks like in your circumstance God didn't show up. What's up with that? Going back to the context of Egypt, how the Pharaoh must have taunted the Israelites. Yeah, where's your God now? Considering their wanderings in the wilderness, you remember Korah was the spokesman for those who were tired of listening to Moses and they wanted to hear directly from God as to when this trial will end. Going forward to the Great Tribulation, how the world led by the Antichrist will taunt the Jews. Well, the world at large, but the Jews in particular. He'll seem to get away with whatever he wants to do and he'll look at the world and say, where is your God now? And from the days of Noah, every generation has faced scoffers. 2 Peter 3 saying, where is the promise of His coming? Because everything continues as it was from the beginning of creation. You're not the first and you will not be the last generation of believers to face the question, where is God? Until the day, 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise 
first. But even then, the expectations of the world will cause them to believe a lie. Unfulfilled plans, unnoticed problems, and then he feels like his prayers have gone unanswered. There in verse 5, that first use of the chorus. First time we read it, I've read it now twice, you can see it there. This chorus is slightly different than the other two. I just pointed out now, we'll kind of come back to it. It, This this word where he says the help of, or, or salvation, it's the word salvation, the help or the salvation of his countenance. You see that? Slight little difference, but you'll see how it changes later on. I just want to point that out for now. But the first step to victory, the, the sight of his countenance, the first step to victory in discouragements of life is summarized in this first chorus. Stop looking at yourself and start looking at God. Get your eyes off yourself. See the salvation of his countenance. Jesus repeated, by the way, the same thing over and over with his disciples, saying, with God, everything is possible. With God, everything is possible. And then what did Jesus himself say to his Father? It is possible with you. But then concluded what? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Discouragement is most often a case of false expectations, even demanding the way we think things ought to be, the way it should work out the needs to change, and then we're disappointed when it doesn't. There's a more familiar chorus that you will remember. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Through tears, we hear the desire of this psalmist The second stanza of this psalm reveals the author's depression through some very, very deep trials. Not exactly sure what it's all about, but he obviously is run through with with great pain. Verse 6. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of the Jordan and the Hermonites from the hill of Mizar. Deep calleth to deep at the noise of the waterspouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me, wave after wave after wave. Yet the Lord will command His loving kindness in the day, time, and in the night. His song shall be with me. My prayer unto God is my life. I will say unto God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning still? Why is this feeling still with me because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a sword in my bones, mine enemies reproach me, while they say daily unto me, where is your God? That's a aggravating phrase. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted, this chorus, within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health or salvation of, you see a little difference here, of my countenance and my God. Well, the first stanza encouraged us to stop looking at yourself, start looking at God. The second stanza, if you remember nothing else, the second stanza is the key that turns the crank. Stop looking for reasons. You got problems? Stop looking for reasons and start looking for promises. But the questions continue. Thirteen times in all. Ten of them begin with the question, why? (laughs) Did you raise kids? (laughs) Why, Mom? Why, Dad? Why? 
right? It's the worst question in the world. Because you know that if you answer one why, what's going to happen? You're going to get another question. And you answer that one because you're a good parent. And you don't want to say what your daddy said. But eventually you're going to get to the point and you're going to say it. And you're going to think, I sound just like my dad. And you're going to say, because I, <laughs> because I said so is exactly where you end up. Well, if you're facing trials and troubles, if all you ever look for is a reason, you're going to end up with something similar to because God said so. And you will not feel very much more encouraged as a result. Suppose God had all answered all the psalmist's questions. What if he had taken every question and answered every question? Would the problem have changed? No, see, for some reason, God has allowed this problem. So the problem's still there. Would the psalmist have felt any better knowing, oh, okay, I didn't know that. It's okay. It's okay with me now. You can take my loved one. You can ruin my job. It's okay now. I'm all right with it. No, see, you wouldn't feel any better at all. Absolutely not. As Warren Wiersbe famously said, as God's children, we live on promises, not explanations. As God's children, we live on promises, not explanations. And I'll give you this illustration. I don't want to take a lot of time, but, but I, yeah. Anyway, but I remember when I was 16, I had a terrible accident playing ball. And I broke my arm. And it was a terrible break because the location of it was up around the shoulder. Basically, the ball joint, it broke off. That's what happened. So the doctor gives me, you know, he can't give me any sedatives because he's got to know, you know, he's getting it right and all this stuff. And he's doing it under x-ray, you know, anyway. Very painful. But it's okay. I ended up with a body cast from here up holding this arm like that. That's how I finished the school year. It was, it was weird. But it was Okay. Because the doctor said, six, eight weeks, we'll get you out of that cast and you'll be back to playing ball. So with that promise, I'm out the door. Eight weeks go by, it's time to cut the cast off. Right? You cut the cast off. I mean, that was quite a, and, oh, can you imagine how sore it was? He says, yeah, it's going to be sore. And I'm moving, I'm like, oh, I don't, I'm just not sure. That just, it feels more than just pain. He said, well, we'll x-ray it, make sure everything's good. The x-rays, I'm waiting in the waiting room. He calls me in, and he's got a different look on his face. He said, Jimmy, I don't know how to tell you this. It's still broke. And with an explanation, he starts telling me about growth of the bone and how I'm growing so fast, and the bone is growing apart rather than growing together. And as the explanation goes on, right? Ugh. As the explanation goes on, he used the word surgery. It was at that point I passed out. I, I literally passed out. I remember him giving me this, the old smelling salts. I don't even know if they use this stuff, but yeah. I literally passed out with the explanation. Because now all hope has been dashed. I'm not going to get back to playing ball this year. 
I don't even know if I'll get back to playing ball in the fall. I don't know when I'll be back. I don't know what this means. I've never had surgery. What do you mean? That's the explanation. The hope was a whole lot better than the explanation. My dear friend, when troubles come, if all you look for is a reason, you'll never find the help and the hope that you need. It can only be found in the promises of God. In order to lead us to those promises, the second stanza begins with remembering. He remembers the greatness of God. You see it in verse 6, verse 7, I remember thee. If you pay attention to God's Word, you'll likely find an illustration somewhere in the Word of God that probably mirrors what you're going through. You can probably find a lot from that, take a lot of, of hope from that. In fact, if you only ever remember the past without God, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and discouragement. Verse 6 describes a land of exile. Verse 7 is the language of Jonah. Remember Jonah? Jonah 2, 3 says, Hast thou cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, and all thy billows and thy waves pass over me? So in the jaws of death, in the land of exile, in the coming tribulation, the Jews have always thought the impending doom is near. But God has always delivered them. Now I'm sure many of you have faced many difficult times, but as a child of God, You've got many, many, many promises that God will deliver you to. Second stanza continues. He comes to rest in the goodness of God. It goes on, verse 8, verse 9. Verse 8, God commands or directs His loving kindness toward us. I love that word every time. It's in the King Jimmy, but every time you come to that, loving kindness, what a great word. Day and night, he says. Sunset, sunrise. Well, you can... Throw into that springtime and harvest. You can throw into that any other combination of things you want. To, you can read Ecclesiastes 3 and talk about the seasons and the times of life and be assured of the goodness of God. Job said, many cry out in their affliction, but only the child of God, only the child of God says, God is my maker who giveth me songs in the night. Night is a reference to the dark and difficult times of life. The way verse 8 is written, see how it begins yet? See that? The way verse 8 is written is reassuring to know that while things may be bad, yet they will not always be this bad. It won't always be this difficult. Morning is coming. Job questioned, Habakkuk doubted, David complained, the sons of Korah had unresolved issues, I'm sure. But as Matthew Henry said, we may complain to God, we may not complain of God. The goodness of God gives us confidence that morning is coming, harvest is coming, the resurrection is coming, our Lord is coming soon, even so come Lord Jesus. And some days we pray that more than others. And then to use a familiar phrase, I, I hate to throw your mind off, but he circles back around to the faithfulness of God. Verse 10, and then that chorus, verse 11. Remember, nothing of his circumstance, nothing of your circumstance may change. In fact, it was now worse 
as he describes the cutting criticism as a sword run through him. That's how difficult this is. What has changed? Nothing. But compare the end of verse 5 with the end of verse 11. Remember I mentioned it to you. What has changed? This word help is still the same, salvation. But it shows up now in the health of what? My countenance. So in verse 5, he's looking at the Lord. In verse 11, now it is making a difference where? While nothing of his circumstance had changed, it is now fair to say he was no longer the same person. I know it sounds cliche, but trials can make you either bitter or better. The key is to stop looking for reasons and start looking for promises. If you remember nothing else, remember that. Well, third final stanza encourages us to stop looking at the past or looking to the future. The author's deliverance through these triumphs of life, you kind of get the sense he's turning the corner. Judge me, O God. Plead my cause against the ungodly nation. Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For thou art the God of my strength. Why dost thou cast me off? Why go I mourning because of the... I shouldn't be doing these like rhetorical questions. O send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me, let them bring me unto the holy hill, to thy tabernacles. Then will I go unto the altar of God, unto God my exceeding joy. Yea, upon the harp will I praise thee, O God, my God. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health, the salvation of my countenance and my God. Now you sense he's turned the corner. Hope in God. In this stanza, the psalmist reminds himself of the future expectation. By the way, everyone has some connection to the future. Everyone has some connection to the future. For the unsaved, for the unbeliever, Ephesians 2, without Christ, aliens, strangers, no hope without God. For the believer, 1 Peter 1, born again unto a lively hope or a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's our hope. That's our connection to the future. And from the confidence of our connection to the future, three things I can be sure of, and I need to give them to you quickly. Number one, God will defend me. Verses one and two. Now I'm going to give you every translation you probably have out there. But in mine it says, plead my cause, he is my strength. In yours it may say, declare my innocence, defend me, deliver me, he's my safe haven. Others will say, vindicate me, plead my cause, rescue me, he's my stronghold. God will defend me. There are times that God moves speedily to save and rescue His own. But there are other times, and perhaps more often than not, He simply allows the process of life choices to take their effect. The laws He has established. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. You know that name? Though the mills of God grind slowly, Yet they grind exceeding small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. God seldom intervenes in the affairs of men as we might have imagined, but rather allows things to take their course, and in the end, God's got your back. God will defend you. God will also direct you 
you, you look on verse 3, you see words there like light and truth and lead me, we read. How many of you know the difficulty and even danger of making decisions when you're in the throes of deep and dark and difficult days? You know you shouldn't be making major decisions then, right? It could be the death of a spouse. It could be the loss of a job. It could be a terminal illness. Some other life-changing circumstance for which you now are waiting on the Lord. Lamentations 3 says, The Lord is good unto them that wait for Him. To the soul that seeketh Him, it is good that a man should both hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And by the way, where can I be certain God is leading me? Verse 3 goes on to say where? It's to the what? To the holy hill? To like tabernacles? Where, what, is that? what is that a reference to? That's heaven. That's the presence of God. The presence of God. You'll never be closer to God than when you walk with Him through some of the most difficult days of your life. And by the way, I, I just throw this out there, you, you know, with that thought of, you know, when everything's going good, the options are endless, and you almost can't make a bad choice. You know, you've got so many options out there. And, you, and you've got to try to make the best option, the best choice. And sometimes when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you've got fewer options. Don't complain because God knows you can't handle a lot of options right now. Just take the next best step because he's still leading you. He is still leading you into his presence. Well, the future may be brighter than you know because number three, we'll, we'll end there. God will deliver me. Verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 literally reads, God is the gladness of my joy. God is the gladness of my joy, from which we may conclude every good thing I enjoy is infused with the gladness of God. That's a great verse for a comedian, if anybody happens to know one. <laughs> God is the gladness of my joy. Depression and discouragement often leaves us stuck. And the life is just sucked out of us. You may be reminiscing about the good old days, forgetting all the things you now have to enjoy. Or maybe, maybe you're trapped. Sometimes people get trapped in some very difficult circumstances that have happened in their past. And as a result, the life has been sucked out of them. There's nothing wrong with reflecting on the past, but while you can never go back and undo what happened, you can always go forward. You can always go forward. Remember our connection to the future. And allow God to once again infuse you with the gladness of joy. Remember what Paul said, This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 6, I read it earlier, verse 19, Which hope we have, as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. You remember this song? Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? When the clouds unfold their wings of strife, when the song, strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor hold or drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul. 
Steadfast and sure, though the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. What is your desire? The things you're going through. What do you desire? Stop looking at yourself. Get your eyes on the Lord. Are you discouraged by what you see now? Whether it's in your life or in the world at large. Stop looking for reasons. Start looking for promises. Where have you turned for deliverance? Stop looking to the past. And remember your connection to the future. Remember, we don't live by explanation. We live by promise. What a great truth.